Let me uh, read from our section this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started, okay? All right, we are in James chapter 3, verse 1 through 5a. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we go to his word this morning. Lord, we thank you for uh, another opportunity to uh, worship you as we go to your word. Profit our time as we spend uh, time in it and help us to understand and ultimately apply that we may honor and glorify you with our thoughts, our words, our very lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this morning section, I direct you to the slide. Okay. How many of you guys know who this is? Anyone venture to take a guess? Anyone want to shout it out? George Whitfield. George That's one of our elders. He should know that. <laughs> it is George Whitfield, okay? And why you may ask, I have a picture of George Whitfield. He is a teacher. Okay, he is an example of a teacher of the Word of God. And uh, to great effect, in fact, uh, he was in the late uh, 1700s, and uh, he was a part of what was called the Great Awakening uh, in uh, England as well as in the Americas. They used to call it the Americas back then. Okay? And uh, he was an integral part along with the Wesley brothers, uh, started uh, the denomination called Methodist, Methodists today. Uh, he was actually a Calvinistic Methodist, if there was a, such a thing. Okay? And um, all to say that he, through his words, through his teaching, affected many, many lives to the glory of God. They came to know Jesus Christ in a saving way through the preaching of the word through his ministry. The second slide here is much more infamous, okay? And if you don't know who he is, his name is Jim Jones. And he was a prominent preacher, uh, originally of a Pentecostal church uh, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And uh, he actually started to gather a large following. And if you don't know his story, it ended up very terribly, okay, in that he took his followers to uh, the country of Guyana down in, in South America and it essentially devolved into a cult. And uh, what ended up happening is that uh, 
most of his followers ended up dying through uh, cyanide poisoning, that they uh, spiked the, the, the punch that was distributed to all the, the followers uh, when he knew that his, his uh, gig was up and he, it was distributed to all his followers and, and they ended up uh, perishing uh, back then. And again, why, why do I bring these two men to your attention? The reason is, is to show you the great power and effect that teachers can have on people, especially in the context of the church. That important principle, okay, that men in the teaching position have a great amount of influence and potential effect. And because of that, he gives us a warning here in James chapter 3. Now, he'll expand that in regards to um, the tongue, and we'll talk about that as well. But the first point here in today's outline, as you can see, is this. Okay. We're going to be talking about the tongue. The first part of that is a warning to teachers. It's a warning to teachers. Now, l- let me give you the, the background and the flow of, of where we are here in James. We can start really back at the end of, of chapter 1 where he describes what is true and undefiled religion. And it is one that meets the needs of those that are marginalized, the orphan and the widows. And he goes on to further explain that it, it, it affects the poor. We need to reach out to those that are, and, and not show partiality to the rich. That if we really want to show the reality of our faith, it manifests itself in the way that we treat people, in the way that we treat particularly the poor. And we saw even from last week that when we say we have faith, it ultimately manifests in the way that we act, that there are deeds, there are actions that manifest itself from a proclamation of that faith unto the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an outward effect as we look to God's word, we confess our faith in Jesus Christ, and our lives, our very lives, will change. Here, he shifts. And you'll notice that throughout this this, uh, letter, that he'll do that with calling out brothers. And it's no different here. In the Greek, it's, it's prominent right at the beginning. My brothers here in the ESV, it's right after that first command. Not many of you should become teachers. And he shifts that the idea is still there, that when we have faith in Jesus Christ, that it will manifest itself. But here, it will manifest itself in our speech, in our tongues, in the way that we use our speech. And Here he puts a laser focus particularly on teachers. And he does it in the form of a warning. Not many of you should become teachers. The first thing that we want to talk about here 
is what is a teacher, okay? What is James referring to here? Is it anyone that teaches in the church context? Now, I think applicationally, there could be an argument for that, but I think uh, there's a more particular idea that James is pointing to here. And when the New Testament uses this word teachers, it's usually in regards to the office or in the official capacity of teaching within the church context. Particularly if you look at First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, he makes mention of that. He says, And God has appointed the, these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. It's that same word there. As well as in Ephesians chapter 4, 11, where he talks about that, again, that the, um, the Spirit has gifted uh, the church and gifted particularly in regards to the prophets and the apostles. And it also mentions, and it, it pairs this idea of the pastor and the teacher. And there seems to be a, a, a synonymous understanding there that the pastor and the elder are, are the same uh, person and office. Okay? And so for that reason, and also the other reason being that James includes himself there, if you look at uh, the rest of it, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So for those reasons, I believe uh, James is pointing to the office of the teacher. Okay? Now, with that in mind, what is the teacher in the New Testament? What is the teacher, pastor, elder, in the New Testament. Well, first, there's a character element to it. There's a character element to it. If we turn to 1 Timothy, I'll turn, I'll, I'll turn there. <clears throat> Chapter 3. Oh. How, can, how come I can't find my First Timothy 3? Okay, there it is. <laughs> the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And here's the overarching character quality. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Okay? And this is kind of the overarching character quality of the elder or the overseer here in this passage, but we're trying to understand what is the teacher in the New Testament. And so, all to say that there is an element, there's a character element inherent in the teacher, and that should not be overlooked. And I think this is tied in with the warning that James is uh, giving to his readers, is that a teacher is not merely... A disseminator of information. It also must include an element of the character of that man. You notice on your uh, when you watch the news. Now I, I don't know anyone that watches the news, or for that matter, has TV these days. Everyone's streaming. But if you do have a TV, and if you grew up in that age of watching television news, okay, 
You grew up with a person in front of your TV giving you the news, information. Does it matter if they are above approach or not? <laughs> no. It doesn't matter, right? Um, and we found that, it, in fact, it doesn't, okay? Uh, if you kind of dive into their private lives, right? Because all they're doing is disseminating information, okay? And you're not really concerned about whether they're living for God or not, if they're above reproach or not, if they're not a drunkard or not, if they're not violent or if, you know, if they're gentle or not. So all of these character qualities that are listed here in 1 Timothy 3 are not applicable to the newscaster, but it is to the teacher, and I think that is tied into James's warning here, is that it's not enough just to be disseminating information within the church context. It's not enough to be able to preach God's word. The pastor-teacher must also live a life that is consistent with the character of Jesus Christ. There's an element for the teacher where he's not just spewing words. There's an element where he first and foremost has to process that internally into his own heart and mind and life and be able to be modeling it as well. That it is not just merely an exercise in, in going through the Greek, finding the right illustrations, like George Whitfield. Okay. But it also includes the element of having the right character. Right? Because that's what Paul says. He says, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. There's an element to those that are teaching within the church context that must include an element of character. Secondly, there's a nuts and bolts to it. There is an element where you see here in in the qualifications of the overseer that he must know how to teach. And in fact, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul's address to Timothy is that he needs to preach the word in season and out of season. And that is his main responsibility within the church context. And so we can't overlook the element that the teacher must also be capable. I grew up in a, in a context where um, not all the time, but sometimes they would jokingly say, I'm going to just let the Spirit lead today, this morning. And it was code word for, I, I, I didn't really prepare anything. <laughs> uh, have, you, have, you, have you grown up in that context as well? Right? It's like, you know what? I prepared a sermon, but really he didn't. But I'm going to just let the Spirit lead this morning. Kind of tells you some stories and and uh, 
you know, probably is sharing about what he thought that morning, okay? To be a teacher in God's church, there must be a faithfulness to his word. And I think that is the key differentiation when you see the list in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, is that the prophets and, and the, um, uh, the, what am I talking about here? The apostles and the prophets were the ones that received the God's word directly, whereas the teacher, the pastor, is one to um, teach the received word. Right? It is the words that were received from the prophets and apostles. And the function of the, the pastor and teacher is to shepherd and care for the flock, but also disseminate and teach the word as it has been received by the prophets and the apostles. And so to that, there must be an, an element of skill, of faithfulness, of an ability to actually look at God's word and understand and teach it. We should not belittle that function in regards to the teacher. In fact, we should encourage those that are in that position to be faithful to study, to be faithful to understand, and then be faithful to proclaim it in a way that the people will receive it and ultimately live it out. Um, You know, people often ask, how long does it take for you to come up with a message, right? Well, I'll give you one example. The, The last message, not this one, but the one right before, it took me literally a day maybe a day and a half, just to look at that first verse (laughs) because it was so difficult to understand. And you're trying to make sure that you're doing all due diligence to make sure that this is the word of God, right? It's not your opinion, but you are proclaiming God's word, not your own ideas, And so because of that, there must be great care and skill put in to that effort. We do want to encourage men to be teachers uh, in the church. Women as well, of course, as they teach other women and children. Okay but that it is not a small thing. And that's why James is giving us this warning here, right? Because there's a character element that must be understood, that it is not just done flippantly. Secondly, that there is an element of faithfulness and skill that must be applied to the teaching of God's Word. And here's the reason why, point point C, right? is that there's greater judgment, okay, greater judgment for those that will be teaching in God's, amongst God's people. Look at that phrase there. For you know that we, and he includes himself, who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
What, what is this judgment that James is referring to? Is, is it the sense of judgment, of condemnation? I don't think so. Again, because he includes himself in it. Judgment, that word in the Greek, can also be used in a neutral sense. In the act of judging, but leaving the verdict unspecified. James is pointing to the fact that those that are in this position that, that fulfill this function within the church will be held to greater accountability. There's a solemn responsibility that the teacher is undertaking when he decides to teach in God's church. As noted, there, there's a great influence, potential influence for those that teach in God's, uh, amongst God's people, either to God's glory or to shame. And for those that are in that position, we must take it seriously. Now, I think this judgment is referring to uh, um, uh, not the judgment of condemnation, but rewards, right? Of those that will, as believers, we will be given rewards or not given rewards, okay? And so when the pastor or teacher, when the teacher does it, either in fault of character or in terms of capability, I think those are the two elements that God is going to judge. Did you do it out of a motive for self-glorification or for the motive of uh, God's glory? Did you actually teach it correctly or did you not? Okay. The teacher has a great responsibility and because of that and because of the potential for great influence, God will hold us to a greater judgment. Okay. If you are here considering uh, being a, a teacher, okay, again, I first of all would ask you that you would prayerfully consider it. That is, this, is this something that the Lord is putting upon your heart? And that he is directing you toward this, okay? And then secondly, if you desire to do that, get the affirmation of his people. Do people respond when you share the word of God with them, okay? Do your elders affirm you as a teacher of God's word? I think those are very practical ways in which you can Understand if this is the direction or something that the Lord would call you toward. And again, don't do it flippantly, but take this warning to heart that even as James understands it for himself, that before the Lord, as he goes before him, he will incur a greater judgment. The call to teaching within God's people is not a small thing. It's a serious and solemn responsibility. And thus, those that will be in that position 
ought to take it that way. I can't tell you the amount of times that we've seen lately in the news of the shame brought to the name of Jesus Christ by those that through character of being morally corrupt okay, and defaming the name of Jesus. Again, if we are to, we need to humbly ask the Lord to keep us humble and dependent upon him as those that would teach his precious word, that we would not merely just be disseminators of his word, but also be models of it. So as you consider those things, take heart of James's warning here to teachers. Well, we need to move on. Verse 2. He goes on to extrapolate this idea of a teacher and its influence, particularly in regards to words and to speaking. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. You could say many things, okay? I, I believe that's a good translation here. For we all stumble, we all, you can also put uh, in there, fail in many ways. All to underscore the idea that we all sin, that we all stumble. He uses this idea of, uh, earlier in chapter 2, okay, um, about the tongue. But again, he's bringing up, regurgitating this idea that we all need to understand that we will all sin. Okay. And that is a given for all of us, even those teachers that are trying to model uh, God's character. But at the end of the day, because of sin, we will all stumble in many uh, different ways. So that's the first thing we need to acknowledge, okay? Is that there is no one above sin in this lifetime, right? And even as Elder George prayed, that there needs to be an element within our lives of constant confession and, and expression of dependence upon our Lord, but he's doing this to set up the tongue. Because even though we will struggle with sin, there is a way forward. There is a way forward, particularly to Christian maturity. And that's what he's pointing out here at the end of verse 2. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. What James is pointing to here is that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, okay, he is a perfect or, you can also translate that, mature man. Able also to bridle or control, that's the idea of bridle, his whole body. James is pointing to the fact that we're all in the same boat 
in the same category, that we will all struggle with sin, and yet there is a way forward. And there's a, the way forward is for us to understand the power of the tongue in our sanctification. doesn't mean that we're going to be sinless, but if we are able to exercise self-control in the realm of speaking and the use of our tongues, that there will be a mastery of the rest of the body. I don't know about you, but, you know, there, there are many areas in, in, in the process of, of my sanctification over the years that, um, you know, you work on, uh, of course, to the glory of God. But there's always this area of the tongue because it's so slippery at the flip of a tongue, whether it's words that you use or even sometimes you don't use, that can cause people to stumble. It can be intentionally biting or it can be innocent and yet cause great harm and pain. There's many instances where an innocent joke turns into some, someone receiving into their heart and affecting them literally for the rest of their lives. This is how powerful the tongue is and how insanely difficult it is to keep under control. I think... James points this out because for those that are in the teaching position, right in the context right before, you're constantly using words. And those words can have, again, a great effect unto the glory of God or it can lead people astray. It could lead people to sin. And because of that fact, James is pointing uh, to the truth here that the, the pathway, the road toward sanctification, toward Christian maturity is first things first. We have to make sure that we control the tongue. Now, with that said, is it a matter of just uh, will control and say, Ugh, I'm going to just bite my tongue when I know I can say very, something very funny? but it's going to be very biting, okay? Is it a matter of just self-control, will control? I, I think not, okay? And I, I want us to, uh, this is a little excursus here in regards to the connection between the heart and the tongue. In Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And now reason why I'm going to bring up the, the, 
the concept of the heart is because Jesus makes it clear out of our heart our, our tongues speak, okay? And I, I want us to see what is the heart in Scripture. The heart is the mind, it's the will, it's all the internal faculties that ultimately make up how we choose what we choose. It's often equated with the mind, okay? Theologians have called it the mission control center. It's the, it's the base for which we make all of our thinking and life decisions. In Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, I'm, all, I'm, make, I'm giving you all these verses to make a case that the heart and the tongue are connected. And here's, let me give you a key verse here. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? And here's the key punchline. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we're going to have a pathway toward maturity, and that pathway is to control the tongue, we also need to understand that we need to understand the heart because it is the, it's out of the heart that the tongue speaks. So then how are we going to control the heart? We have to ask the Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Look, verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the key to guarding our hearts is the word of God. James points out this earlier in, in chapter 1, talking about the law of liberty. It is through his word that we're saved. But not only are we saved, we are sanctified through it. So the key, the way forward, is to guard our hearts. And the way that we guard our hearts is through his word. There must be a constant meditation, an intake of his truth. And as that happens, that is what will fill our hearts. And as, that, as God's words fill our hearts, that is the expression of our tongue. If we are to truly mature, if 
the way forward, as James points out, is to control the tongue. We need to control the heart. As we control the heart through God's word, therein lies the key toward Christian sanctification. Questions we have to ask ourselves What then is in my heart? What is the meditation of my heart? Is it God? Is it Jesus? Is it his word? Some of us know the words to BTS songs better than God's word. Now, look, I'm not pointing at anyone in particular, okay? For that matter, you know, what I tell Pastor Gary is, I, I really believe he could be one of the greatest theologians in our age, if not for all of his hard drive been taken up by 80s songs, <laughs> by 80s rap songs. The statistics to all the Pittsburgh Steelers teams. He's watching right now, by the way. Look, I'm not saying we can't, you know, enjoy this life and the thing God provides. Part of our rest and recreation, okay. Um, But really, what is the meditation of our heart? What is it that we are seeking after daily. It is this simple and profound principle that will move our tongues toward righteousness, that will move our speech toward being kind and caring and less biting and sarcastic. This is the way forward toward Christian maturity. And he's going to point that out. That this small thing has a huge influence. A controlled tongue is the way toward Christian maturity. Here's two illustrations. And James loves illustrations. The gold fingers, you know, um, Abraham and Rahab. He just loves giving us word pictures. And here is no different. The first picture here in verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And he's illustrating the point that the small tongue, okay, and in here he equates it with the, the bridle, and the bridle is, a, is the, the horizontal thing that sits on top of the tongue of the horse, okay? And it is the, the maneuvering by the reins of that bridle that controls the whole body of the horse. I, I know this actually firsthand. I have ridden a horse uh, a couple of times. The first was when I was a young lad. Do we still use that word, lad? Okay. <laughs> when I was a wee bit lad. Okay. Um, <laughs> And I think my parents put me on a little pony thing, okay? And, you know, you just go in a circle, right? But it was a real horse, okay? And the second time was in our honeymoon, on our honeymoon. 
we went to Hawaii, and, you know, I'm trying to plan this trip so that, you know, we're just not at the beach all, every day. So I, I, I signed us for a horseback uh, riding trip, okay? And uh, Esther and I got to ride a horse. And that was pretty cool, okay? Because it was this really huge horse, and they give you a point, few pointers. And literally, it's true, you can control the horse, okay? So you move it to the, like, you pull it to the right, and it goes to the right, okay? And you do the click, Thing and it goes, you know, uh, forward. So that was pretty cool. All to say, okay, that James is illustrating for us in a real life where people know and see horses and see the effect of a small little bridle able to control a huge animal. And that's the point here. Again, word pictures, okay? So it's that Small thing that sits on top of the tongue, and James is pointing out. Now, this is true for verse 3 and 4, is that there is an operator of that, that bridle, okay? So don't miss that, is that there is one that controls, it's not just the bridle itself, but it's the person operating that bridle. Verse 4. Second illustration, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by small, strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Again, the second illustration to point out, <laughs> you like, like that one? Okay, the small rudder at the very bottom controls the rest of the huge ship. Okay, and the, the strong winds are driven by it, but the dir- ultimate direction is driven by the pilot that controls the rudder. We all have control over a tongue. That is no excuse to say, oh, the tongue has a mind of its own. I think James is pointing out to the fact again that as we find a pathway toward being the perfect man, to being a mature believer, we have to take responsibility for it. That it is not just going to happen on its own. But that we have access, we have control over our tongues. We should never say, the devil made me do it. All of us have a responsibility just like the rider of the horse, just like the pilot of the ship to control and use our tongues in a way that's going to honor the Lord. It is a small thing and yet so powerful. The small tongue controls the rest of the body. The small bridle controls the rest of the horse. The small rudder controls the rest of the ship. You see that theme there? We should never overlook anything just because it's a small thing. And James is going to expound upon that in the rest of this context here, starting in uh, the second half of verse 5. If we're going to understand 
our road to maturity, we need to understand the power of the tongue. It needs to be under control. Last verse. The tongue's boast. Look there at verse 5, the first part of verse 5. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. What does James mean by that? Does he mean in a general way that it can boast of a powerful influence? Or is it being used in a negative way that there is a potential for evil resident within the tongue? I think James is pointing out to the general power and influence, the potential influence that it can have. Now, he's going to transition to a negative uh, uh, illustration right after that. But the previous two or three are potentially good, right? It leads to Christian maturity. It leads to being able to control a larger body, the horse or the ship. That is the tongue's boast. That it is an instrument to be able to be used for great good or great evil. There's a great influence that the tongue can have, either positively or negatively. It can instruct or edify, or it can pull down and tear down other people. These are the considerations that we have to make before us as we consider the tongue. As you think about just your own speech, as you think about the way that you have used your words just in the past week, okay, has it been used for God's purposes or your own? Has it been used to build up a fellow believer or tear down? I'm sure many of us can attest to the fact that words can do great harm. I remember uh, in in, uh, middle school, this one biting remark, and I still remember it to this day, okay? Um, I forgot the exact context, but I was actually saying, I'm sorry, okay, because I think I I did something wrong, okay, to uh, a friend of mine. And um, you know what his response was? He says, yes, you are. And to this day, I remember that cutting remark, okay? That in my earnestness to apologize, he turned it around and used it as a means to cut down and to disparage, okay? Words have great effect that we should not take lightly, that we should make sure that we are 
really controlling the things that we ingest. We are processing in our hearts, in our minds, because ultimately it will flow out of our speech. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do ask for your grace in this area. It is an area that all of us need much grace in. For we all stumble in many ways, and in particular, in the ways of our speaking. We pray, Lord, that you would really sanctify our tongues, that you would really get a hold of our hearts, that our, the meditation of our hearts would be upon you and what you have done in Jesus Christ, and that from that gracious overflow of understanding our salvation and who we are before you, a child forgiven because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, that our thoughts and ultimately our speech would be transformed, not for our own sake, but for the greater glory of who you are and ultimately your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.